You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're in the second week in a sermon series in 2 Peter, a series entitled Waiting for the End of the World. Waiting for the End of the World. 2 Peter is written to confront false teachers denying God's future judgment and the return of Christ. It's written to confront these false teachers. If you look in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, this is what they're saying. They're saying, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, what, what do you mean he's coming back? Where is the promise of his coming? And Peter goes on to refute their skepticism, their claim. He reminds them, first of all, God has judged the world before. Secondly, that God doesn't see time like we do. A day to us or a thousand years to us is as a day to God and vice versa. It doesn't seem like a long time to him. And third, in verse 9, that God is patient with you. That's why it seems to be taking so long, because God is, is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So where does that leave us? In chapter 3, verse 11 to 14, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We are waiting, waiting for that day. That's what Second Peter, that's what this sermon series is all about. How do we wait? For the end of the world. How do we do that? For the return of Christ and God's future judgment. How do we wait for the new heavens and the new earth? Last week we looked in the first part of chapter 1 at waiting with diligence. Diligently living a life of holiness and godliness. Living now like the way we live now will matter then. That the way we live now is of consequence then. We're waiting with diligence. This week Waiting with confidence. Waiting with confidence. Look at 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 16. 2 Peter 1, 16. Springview, this is God's word. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, 
to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray now you'd help us as we look in your word. Lord, we need to see, we need to look, we need to know that this world will end, that you will come in judgment and glory and power, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and we need to know how to wait for that. Lord, I pray you'd help us as we consider your word this morning to wait confidently, certain, sure that that day will come and that we would live wisely in accord with that truth. So please help us now. Help us to understand and see this in your word and and then help us to embrace it with humble, willing hearts. Help us to change in all the ways you want to change us, to make us more like your son. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid, up until I was 11 years old, we lived in the city of Saginaw, so on a city block with a sidewalk that went all the way around it, and um, my mother was very protective. We weren't allowed to cross any streets. Our friends would come over, and they'd bike in the street and go across, and we'd say, no, 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 not here. We stay on our block. Mom keeps us really close, and so we would bike on this sidewalk around our city block, and my sister's two years younger than I was, and, and she was, at seven or eight years of age, like most kids, liked to pretend she was older than she was. Um, I'm not sure that ever really changes. For, I, you, I guess you reach a point where we start pretending we're younger than we are, but when you're a kid, you pretend that you're older than you are. And uh, so we had a, I had a, a bike, that, a secondhand bike that my parents had bought from an older kid in our church. It was a Western cowboy-themed bike for all the obvious reasons and um, had a, had a you know, ringer bell on the uh, handlebars and this, I'd ride my two-tone brown cowboy bike around the block. And my sister had a, a blue bike with these handlebars that came way up like this which now you might buy as like a retro bike, but it then just seemed like, boy, this is old, because all the, all the cool and bigger kids had 10 speeds, right? And so they got the short handlebars, and you bend over and ride like this. So my sister, being mature like she was, um, she would, uh, when she would ride her bike, she wouldn't ride like this holding the handlebars um, because she was too old for that. She would go down the handlebars right down to the base and hold them like this as though the rest of the handlebars weren't there. And she would, now the problem is she was maybe eight years old, she's riding like this. So she'd take, one day we're in the house and all of a sudden we hear hollering and she comes running in, yelling, crying, blood, and what's going on? Well, it turns out um, to her sorrow and my parents' annoyance and my amusement um, <laughs> is that she, she'd been riding around the block like this on her 10-speed and uh, went around the corner, and our neighbors had a big old car from the 70s that they consistently parked across the sidewalk. And so she biked along like this and, and hit it before she ever saw it, you know, over the handlebars, into the car, chipped a tooth, bloody lip, and uh, I said, well, that's what you get for pretending you're older than you are, right? And that's um, well, all the sympathy a 10-year-old brother could, uh, could muster. Um, but it's like you got to, you know, you kind of got to keep your head up when you're riding your bike. You can't, you can't be looking down, you gotta be looking up, or you'll crash. You gotta keep an eye on where you're going. All too often, though, we have our heads down. I, I don't know about you, but I live a lot of my life like that. 
head down, focused on right here, right now, not looking where I'm going down the road. Just, we lose sight of tomorrow. We're hustling around with busy schedules, long to-do lists. We're, we're short-sighted and focused on what's immediately before us. And that's important. But we don't see all too often what's coming down the road. I was just talking with someone a couple days ago about how the number of books I want to read and the ideas I want to think about and study and the sports I want to play and the hobbies I want to pursue and the people I want to spend time with and the movies I want to watch and the places I want to go, I can't begin to get to all of those. Probably you felt that way before. There just isn't enough time. But subconsciously we think and act like if I hustle just a little more, if I figure out a way to be just a little more efficient, if I sleep a little less, if I spend a little less time with those people, if I give a little less attention to God, maybe I can fit all of this into my life. And we get focused on right here, right now, cramming as much into our lives as we can, and we don't look down the road. We don't see what's coming. We don't lift our heads up long enough to ask and really see, where, where's my life going? because I'm so preoccupied with right now. We're not asking, where will this path take me? We have our heads down, grinding away, and there's a good chance that our lives won't end up where we want them to, where we thought and hoped they would. You know, that's a real risk in our spiritual lives, too. We're busy, distracted, running around from one thing to the next, so focused on what's right in front of us, we neglect to look up and see that there's a car parked across the sidewalk. You know, the, the timeline, the long sidewalk, the timeline of human history will end abruptly. There is coming a day when Christ will return. This world as we know it will end. And we will face him and stand before him in judgment. We may be surprised when it happens, but we really shouldn't be. Judgment's coming. No one can or will miss it. And that distraction and short-sightedness is a big problem in our spiritual lives. The fact that we don't look ahead, the fact that we don't see, that we're, in fact that we're not regarding that is a big problem because the reality of it should never be far from our minds. I was thinking recently for some reason I don't recall, about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, you know, the volcano uh, near Naples in Italy that erupted in 79 AD and instantly buried much of the city of Pompeii, and which, of course, has made it a remarkable archaeological site, but bad deal for them then. Buried in this city. And, and the lead-up to that eruption, that cataclysmic event, was going on for who knows how long. And... And it should have affected how they lived, how they acted, the choices they made, where they chose to be, what they were doing, except they, they didn't see it coming. They didn't know that that day was fast approaching. We do. We don't know what day that is. We don't know when it will be. But that day is certainly coming. Christ will return. The Bible makes this clear 
And over and over again, that truth, that reality is given to us as a, a kind of defining reality, a motivating reality, a clarifying reality, for this is how we ought to live in light of the fact that that day is coming. That's what verse, chapter 3, verse 11 we read a few minutes ago said. Since these things are, be to, are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be? In light of this truth, what sort of people ought we to be? But we tend to lose sight of it. That's the problem Peter's addressing in this letter. They lose sight of it, but, but actually it's worse as he writes to these people. Th their problem isn't just busy Christians neglecting to live in light of the end of the world. Their problem is pseudo-Christians who are actively denying that the world will end at all. They're shaking the confidence of genuine Christians. They're denying that the story ends that way and inviting them to live in a different story. And they're doing it in a clever way. Turn over a page back to chapter 3 and look at verse 4. They ask the question, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, was it... Nothing seems to be changing. What, he's coming back? I don't see it. They're not saying, hey, people, keep your head in the sand. Don't look up. Don't look around. Don't notice that, that Christ is going to return and the world's going to come to an end. They're not building barriers or screens so people can't see. They're saying, no, look around. Look around, people. What evidence do you see for the end of the world? Things just keep going like they always have. People get up in the morning. They go to work. They plant their crops. They harvest them in the fall. People get married. Babies are born. People live. People die. Kingdoms rise. Kingdoms fall. Winter, spring, summer, fall. Winter, spring, summer, fall. On and on and on. Look, people, nothing's changing. See any evidence of that? Where's the promise of his coming? Doesn't look like it to me. Here's what these false teachers are doing. They're challenging what the Bible teaches about Christ's return. And they tell people to look for evidence of the end of the world in the wrong place. They say, look around you. Do you see it? No. It's probably not going to happen then. They're telling them to look around them, and that's not the right place to look. That's not where the evidence lies. Peter wants his readers, wants us to wait for the return of Christ with confidence, to have it inform every aspect of the way that we live. And we won't do that. We won't live like that if we don't really believe, confidently believe that he's coming back. I don't mean technically believe. I don't mean, well, yeah, that's in our statement of faith, so I guess we do believe that. I mean confidently believe it so that it impacts our choices and our values, the way we actually live. Peter wants, them, wants us to live with confidence that that day is coming. And here's the great irony that informs Peter's argument here. The big idea is this, we get confidence in Christ's return, not by looking around us or ahead of us, but by looking back. 
We get confidence in Christ's return, not by looking around us or ahead of us, but actually by looking back. We look up by looking down. Let me show you this in the text. How do we know with confidence the world will end? Back in 2 Peter 1, in verse 18 or 16, Peter says, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Probably what's happening here is this. People have come, they've spoken and taught these Christians that Peter's writing to, and they have said, oh, Peter's just telling you stories. Now, that sounds kind of crazy to us. We're like, this is Peter. He's an apostle. But we know that happened. Think how often Paul faced that. Think about how often Paul had to defend himself against people that would come to the apostle Paul and it, or uh, speak about the apostle Paul to churches and say, well, Paul doesn't know. Paul's not right. That's incorrect. And so Paul frequently finds himself writing to defend himself. And we think, that's the apostle Paul. But no, they would challenge what he said. And apparently that's what they're saying about Peter here, too. Apparently, the, the, these false teachers are saying, Peter's making up stories. He's telling you the world's going to end because he thinks it'll make you live like this. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths. But, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's he talking about? He's talking about that, that event we read about earlier in our service in Matthew 17, the transfiguration, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he brings Peter and James and John, his three closest disciples, and he's transfigured before them. His face and his, his clothes shine with this glory and with this radiance. It, it recalls that scene in the Old Testament when Moses goes 40 days to the top of the mountain and is in God's presence and is given the law. When he comes down, his face glows with this radiant glory that has been come from being in God's presence. Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, Elijah and Moses, two of the great prophets of the Old Testament, appear with him, and Peter and James and John are blown away. It, it's, it's an unreal, you, we, we simply have no comparison in our, in our existence to, to compare this to. And Peter says to them, look, we were there. I'm not passing along stories. I'm not passing along legends I didn't make up some myths because I thought maybe I could manipulate you. I saw him in glory. We saw him radiant with the Father's glory, transfigured before us. What's he saying? If you'd seen what we'd seen, you wouldn't doubt that this man is going to be king. But not only did we see it, he says, they're not just eyewitnesses, they're ear witnesses. He says, we, we heard the heavenly voice. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We heard the heavenly voice. And as you recall from Matthew 17, they, they fall down on their faces in terror. Peter says, if you'd seen what we'd seen of this Jesus, if you'd heard what we heard, you wouldn't doubt. You wouldn't doubt that this man, this God-man Jesus, was going to come back and rule as king. It would be obvious to you if you'd seen what we'd seen. He goes, and we didn't make that story up. We're not passing along to you this myth about, oh, the world is going to end. We saw him in glory. 
And if you'd seen what we'd seen and you'd heard what we'd heard, you wouldn't doubt. You'd have confidence that this is God's king. There's apostolic witness to this truth, and Peter points them to that. Don't listen to the false teachers. They weren't there. They didn't see this. They have their own agenda. We'll look at that over the next couple weeks. I was there. I saw him. There could be no doubt that we'll all bow someday to this king. We have this apostolic witness. But there's more. He goes on in verses 19 to 21 to say there's also a prophetic witness. The prophets have spoken here. Look at verse 19. He says, we and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Probably what Peter means here is this, that what Peter has seen gives added weight and added credibility to what the Old Testament prophets had seen and said. We've not just have the witness of the prophets, but we've seen this glory ourselves. It's more fully confirmed. And then he says, the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. That's the closest thing to a command in this passage. There's a prophetic word, he says, and you would do well to pay attention. You would do well to read it and know it and acknowledge it. That's something we need across the board in our lives. We would do well to pay attention to God's word. We know that. Probably nobody would deny it. But we also know that there are a lot of other things vying for our attention. There are a lot of other distractions. There's a lot of other voices. There's a lot of other things that, that pull our attention away from God's word. So that we, that we read into our lives and into our world and evaluate and make decisions and choices and values that, that are informed often, all too often, by other factors because we've lost sight of God's word. We're not paying careful attention to it. How well are you paying attention to God's word? Listen, if the only time, and I say this not to, not to rebuke you, but to challenge and encourage you, if the only time you pay attention to God's word is for 35 minutes on Sunday morning while I'm talking, that's just not close enough attention for any of us. It just isn't. We need more careful attention than that. Peter says, we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You recall the psalm, you know, that uh, your word is a, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Here's the challenge with that. God's word allows us to see, to interpret the world, interpret ourselves, our lives, what's going on, by its light, but we, we don't think we're in darkness. We think we see just fine. And so we need God's word to help us see what we don't realize we're missing. You know, if you're walking through a really, a really, really dark place, um, you, uh, and, and you've been in those kind of uh, situations, you know, you just, you realize, I can't see anything. You know, I've been in a place where you can't see your hand in front of your face. So you're very aware I am blind, I cannot see, I could use some light. But that's not normally how it feels for us going through life. 
Maybe sometimes, in, in times of real difficulty or crisis or challenge, we might begin to sense some of that. But normally, I feel like, oh, I see just fine. We see the light from the world around us, and we think, I, I understand what's going on in my life and in my family, my relationships, my world. I understand because I can see. And we actually need God's word to, to reveal how, how poorly we do see, how much more light we need. Peter says, you've got the word. You should dwell to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Why? Because, verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The reason we need the light of God's Word and the reason we can rely on it and trust it and have confidence in it is because God's Word, the Bible, is not the Word of man, but the word of God. The word of man is fallible. It can be an error. It can distort. It can be partly right and partly wrong. Sometimes it's outright lies. But the word of God is pure and true and 100% reliable. Look, it's no accident that so many attacks on the Christian faith today start as attacks on the Bible doubting the truth and reliability of God's Word because our faith is rooted in the Word itself. We don't believe everything we see, uh, everything we believe because of what we see in the Word. We believe it because it has come from God. Now, to be sure, the Bible has a very human element. It was written by people who spoke a particular language and had a particular vocabulary and wrote in a particular genre or style of writing to communicate a particular message. But what we understand about the Bible, unique among all other books, is that these people, as these all men, or nearly all men as it turns out, are writing out these things as they're thinking about what to say and what they want to communicate and what they want to write, that they are being guided, or it says here, carried along by the Holy Spirit so that the Bible is both a human document written by real people in real time and place and language, but even more importantly, a divine document. It carries the authority and reliability of God himself. And because it is God's very words, we can have confidence in it. What the Bible says, God says. And because God cannot lie, the Bible cannot lie. Because God cannot be in error, the Bible cannot be in error. And so Peter says to them, we can have this confidence because we know that these are God's own words. These prophets weren't saying, well, I feel like, I think, it seems to me there will probably be a day of judgment someday at the end of the world. No, they're not. That's not how they're communicating. They're communicating God's own words. That promise is God's own promise. And he says this, Interesting phrase, verse 20, knowing this first of all. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy comes from someone's own interpretation. It's as though that truth is a a foundational truth. We start with that. There's something foundational about scriptures. You know, the world tests scriptures against other things. So, So take the first couple chapters of Genesis that talk about the creation of the world. And what the world will do is say, well, let's look at modern science and see if Scripture stands up. Now, that's a complicated topic, but that's just not how Christians start. 
Christians start with God's word and test everything by it. It's not in this case that we're against science, of course. But, but science isn't God. God is God. And we test everything else by him and by his word. It is our foundational principle. It's the thing that we know first of all. That's why we pay careful attention to it. It's the foundation of our confidence as we wait for the end of the world. We must keep our eyes up on the fact that this world will end. But we do so not by looking around us, but by looking back, by looking to God's word, believing his promises throughout the Bible. The certainty that God will come back he will remake from the very beginning when, when the, the first heavens and earth are, are uh, plunged into the curse and destruction and death with the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden to the very end when God will make all things new. The, that's, that is the way the story is going. And these people in Peter's day and so many in our day want to change the story. They want to say, no, it's a different story. That's not what's happening. That day is not going to come. And we'll look next week at, at why they do that, what motivates them. But we have to be aware. We have to look with confidence that Christ will return, and we do that by looking back. Several years ago, um, and probably three or four years ago, uh, Owen and Aubrey uh, and I went through a, a little phase where we were going out and running together, uh, exercising, and so uh, the three of us were out one day, uh, and we were, we'd uh, run out of our sub across the street into the, uh, the sub across, from, not Steve and Janie's, but the one next to it. And we were, we're running through there, and we're running along, and I'm kind of out in front, and Owen and Aubrey behind me, and every so often I look back, see how they're doing, and they're doing, you know, they're doing fine. And so we're running along, and all of a sudden I hear this noise, and a little cry. And I turn around, and Aubrey's down on the ground, down on the road. She jumps up, and knees all scuffed up, a little drip of blood down her knees, and she's all upset, and I go over, and I kneel down, and I give her a hug, and I say, what happened? I tripped, and I said, well, I know, but I tripped, my knee is bleeding, and uh, so I consoled her for a few moments, and, and I knew there had to be more to the story than just she tripped, just because I know Aubrey. And so after she had settled down a little bit, I said, Aubrey, were you... Um, when you fell, were you running in a special way? And she said, uh, well, I was just running like this, you know, bent all the way over. And I said, well, that's what happens when you run with your face down to the ground. She's, you know, 90-degree angle, bent over like this. You can't. I would fall if I ran, bent over at the waist, looking at the ground two feet in front of me. you got to keep your head up, and you got to look and see where you're going or you're almost certain to fall. The same's true when it comes to following Christ. We get so short-sighted. And, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to minimize the details, the many significant details that you will face today. We can only live today, and so we need to deal with those and interact with those, but we must be careful not to be so short-sighted, so short-focused that we don't have our heads up looking to see that day that is certainly coming, there's a big blue car across the sidewalk. We're going to crash. This world is headed for it. There is no way around it. Even in the church, we don't talk about it much. Even saying it here sounds a little bit strange because 
we're focused and short-sighted here, or we're looking around us and we don't see or feel the signs. Every day we're a day closer, but I don't feel any closer. And what Peter is encouraging them here is, you, you have to have confidence that we need to wait for the return of Christ. And that confidence comes, not by looking around us, but by looking back, by looking down to the scriptures themselves, by believing and embracing the promises. Christ will surely return. This world as we know it will surely end. There will be for God's people a new heaven and a new earth. And for those who don't know God through his son, there will be judgment and ruin. It is certain. And we need confidence. Because if we're confident, we'll live in light of it. Our values and decisions, priorities and behaviors will be guided by it. We need to look to the word for confidence in Christ's return. Let me pray with you. Father, I thank you for your love and concern and care for us. I thank you for the way that you always keep your promises. Lord, we need eyes to see. We need hearts that give careful, earnest attention to your word. We need to go back to it again and again to be reminded that this world is not forever, that you will send your son, he will return again to earth to establish his kingdom in fullness, that we will stand and appear before him. Lord, we need confidence of that. I pray we would go again and again to your word to receive that confidence, to, to hear that word, and that it would really shape and guide us, that it would guide our behaviors, guide our attitudes, guide our values and priorities, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our lives, I pray would be informed by the reality that this world will end. Help us not to be blinded by the attractions and the distractions of this world. But rather have eyes that are open and clear-sighted, forward-looking through your word. Please help us with this. Help us live lives today that will matter then. We would consider it a grace and a blessing. We thank you in Jesus' name. Well, I want to thank you for coming this morning. It's been good to be here with you. Let me send you out with these words of benediction from Romans 16. Now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a great